customers are the heart of their company. Absolutely. And if they want the heart to be healthy and the body to grow, and then they have to listen to what the customers are saying. They can't just push them to the side and, and do, do just enough to keep enough engaged to keep the, the numbers going. Like if you want to be a market leader, you have to take care of your customer. Hi there, and welcome to another edition of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your business. Now, as you are probably well aware at this point, I am not John Warlow. I am not the host of Built to Sell Radio. My name is Colin Morgan. I am the new executive producer here of the podcast. Now, not to worry, John will continue to do all of the interviews here on the podcast. He's the one going to be talking to the guest, asking the questions. I will take on more of a co-host role here for the podcast. So while John is out running his company, I am solely here for you to provide you with as much value as I possibly can. Now, today on the show, we're going to be hearing from Jonathan Schroyer, who sold his service company, Officium Labs, forget this, around 20 times EBITDA. But before we jump in to today's episode with Jonathan, I just want to make a quick note. You've probably been hearing this from John for the past few weeks, but we are really making an effort to improve our show notes page. So you can head over to builttosell.com slash radio, and there you're going to find references to everything that is mentioned here in the podcast today with Jonathan and John. Now, I've not only added the references to today's podcast, but you can also find the official press release of Jonathan Schroyer's sale in there, along with the definitions of today's podcast. So some of the lingo that John and Jonathan are going to be talking about, I've myself found super helpful to head over to that show notes page so you can kind of follow along and get a better understanding of the language that is used during today's podcast episode. Lastly, before we get into today's guest, I want to let you know that if you have an idea for a guest, I'd love to hear from you. I do all of the research about potential guests and who I think would be a great fit to come on the show and talk to John. And each week, John and I sit down and chat about who would be a great fit. Therefore, if you know of a cool story or even want to nominate yourself, you can head over to builttosell.com slash nominate and get in touch with me there. Okay, so now let me tell you about today's guest, Jonathan Schroyer, who along with his co-founder, Scott McCabe, started Officium Labs. Now, Officium Labs essentially helps clients turn contact centers into profit centers. And after two years of seeing some incredible growth, they were approached by three investors to acquire Officium Labs. Jonathan ultimately ended up selling to a rise for, as I mentioned above, around 20 times EBITDA. Now, during this episode with John and Jonathan, some of the things that they're going to cover in today's conversation are things such as how to increase the lifetime value of a customer, how to choose the ideal time to sell your company, how to maintain happy and healthy relationships with your suppliers, how to structure an earnout to minimize your risk as the owner, how to ensure employees don't rebel against your acquirer after the sale. How to avoid getting bullied by an acquirer by asking the right questions. How to maximize your shot at hitting your earnout, And how to prepare yourself emotionally to be acquired. Here to tell you the entire story is Jonathan Schroyer. Enjoy.
Jonathan Schroer, welcome to Build to Sell Radio. Hey, thanks, John. Okay, so Officium Labs, dumb this down for me. Explain the business to me like I'm a child. What did you guys do? Well, essentially, I, my co-founder and I, Scott, we worked in the services industry for about 20 years. And one of the biggest challenges that we found is that it was difficult for service leaders to communicate the revenue opportunity that service teams create inside of a company. So if I'm running the call center at like Delta Airlines and yep. the CFO just looks at me as like a call center and 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 a and a and a and a, and a cost center, I should say. That's and right. and you're like, well no, hold on. If if that if that Delta person can upsell a business class ticket, they're not a cost center anymore. They are a revenue generator. But I mean, that's, acquires, that's yeah. Part, that's right. That's part of it. But the other part of it is that Delta representative can protect future revenue by delivering a great experience to that customer who's really angry because their flight was delayed or their luggage is missing or whatever, right? So it's it's that concept. And so I invented a framework called the Service Stack uh, Maturity Model. And the okay. framework essentially helps companies um, create uh, best-in-class service operations to prove out revenue. We call it revenue protection or revenue attribution. So think of it like protecting the revenue from your current customers. And then revenue attribution is when you have future revenue that could come from that current customer because of good experience. And was that like scratching your itch? I know you ran CX teams for yeah. big, large enterprise customers. I mean, did you have the experience of the CFO looking at you and saying, come on, man, like, why are you so expensive? And you had to like demonstrate with a spreadsheet why you're worth it kind of thing. Was that, it was sort of scratching an itch, if you will? Yeah. I mean, ever since 97, 98, when I started, you know, for 20 years, it was just like, why do we have to spend so much money? outsource here, move this here, move this, you know, it was always about optimization. And I always look at like services in two ways as a startup founder. One is protect. You want to protect the customers you acquire, protect meaning keep. And then the second is optimize. And optimize is you want to deliver the most efficient cost experience to deliver the protection. But protect should always be number one. Yeah, for sure. How did you guys make money? In other words, what was your business model at Ethereum? We started off with licensing the maturity model and then building out consultative services around it. So we'd go in, we would do an assessment of the operation. We'd let them know where they were best in class, where they weren't. We have this, in the maturity model, we have 100 features of CX. We won't go into the details of that, but there's a hundred features. And so we'd identify with clients, like how many features they had across the different buckets that we had developed. And then we'd let them know which features they needed to invest in if they wanted to deliver protection attribution and so forth. I don't want to go into all hundred, Jonathan, but I would love to know just so the listener can kind of get it. Can you give me an example of one of those features that was in the maturity model? Yeah. For example, uh, in our engagement pillar, we have, uh, if you're best in class in engagements, you have what we call agent AI assist. And what that basically means is that you have a hybrid AI slash human agent that services the customer so that you can get a cost efficient experience. So the AI writes 80% of the response, but then the agent comes in and, and reviews it, 
customizes it, personalizes it, and sends it off. But you only have to pay half of what you'd normally pay for a human because the AI does most of the work. Doesn't so that's an work. example of a feature. So that's super helpful. So if I'm getting this right, like when I take my car to the mechanic, they, they pitch me like, I'll give you the 100 point inspection and like, we'll do your tires or we'll do your, we'll, you know, yeah. we'll tell you if your oil needs changing, whatever. So you would, in a much more sophisticated way, work with an organization and do this 100 point audit called the maturity model where you yep. would identify and give them marks, give them a face, effectively a score on each of these 100 yep. different things. And if they were, and then you could, you could pair that back to them or show them the report and say, look, you're underperforming on these things relative to your peer group. You might want to invest in this or that. If I got it basically right? Yeah, I mean, essentially that. And then we create a game for their leadership team. Because, I mean, there's always more than you can do in a year, right? Usually mm -hmm. we find 20 to 30. And normally you can only introduce maybe 9 to 12 features in a year or 18-month period. And so we create a game with a monetization econ uh, an economy where, where they can only buy one third of the features, but they have to work together as a team to determine which third cool. of those features that they want to buy. And then that informs the strategy and the roadmap that we build for them that they can then execute against. Got it. So revenue stream is licensing the maturity model and then the consulting services on the, on the sort of back of that. Was there a third revenue stream? Well, that's how we started. And then as we kind of started with a number of large gaming companies, what we found is they're like, hey, you do this cool thing over here, helping us build the future. Can you also support our customers with the actual human beings and the agents that talk to it? And so then we launched our second line of business. At the time, it was called Connect. It's now called Arise Gaming, where we have you know thousands of you know frontline resources that provide the best in class services to engage and talk with um, the, you know, the players of the games and so forth. And so those, it, it, I mean, it's, it's a little bit like, I mean, I've heard that, you know, JetBlue was recruiting, you know, people who were out of the workforce were coming back into the workforce and were like, you know, I don't, I don't really want to go to a, like a big office somewhere, but I've got four or five extra hours while the kids are at school or whatever. Like I want to use that yeah. time. And so they, they, they sign up and become like a yeah. JetBlue representative. Yeah. So you're effectively a staffing agency for these people. Like you're not hiring them full time and then reselling them effectively to these brands. You're you're enabling the the transaction, but they are billing effectively by the hour. Is that was that the model or? Yeah, I mean, essentially, it, it's similar to that. So you can kind of think of it as the gig CX model, where you know we we have these decentralized resources across the globe. I think we're in like eleven or twelve countries now, and we provide them an opportunity to leverage their time. Um, to get interesting experiences and make money, but also to live where they want to live. Like a lot of companies force, even post-COVID, they'll force you to go back in the office, move closer to one of the tech hubs or HQ or whatever. But here we're like, no, let's, let's diversify wealth across the globe and give people opportunities wherever they want to live. But how did you make money on that job? So go ahead. No, sorry. I was just gonna say, how did you make money on the staffing piece? Like, did you take a cut of all the hours that you out? Like, it was it sort of yeah. So we or? we do a, a two prong approach. One is we do kind of an hourly rate, but mm -hmm. we do outcome based pricing, which is really new in the industry. So we don't believe that like you should just pay us. Let's let's say it's twenty dollars an hour or whatever it is. We'll say twenty for this example. Don't pay us $20 and, and hope that we're going to deliver a good service for you. Why don't you pay us less? Why don't you pay us 13 or 14 
but give us the opportunity to earn 23 or 24 by over-delivering or delivering against that expectation. So we call it outcome-based pricing. And so yeah, it enables us it enables us to deliver and be motivated, incentivized to do and and our, our kind of service partners to be motivated and incentivized to do a better job. Man, that is like a the holy grail for anybody in the consultancy space or IP where it's like, I want a piece of the upside here if we can have an impact, especially for folks who believe in their product. The challenge yeah. though is always like, how do you measure it? And and if if there's an improvement in you know, uh, customer experience or lifetime value of a customer or longevity of a customer. It's always like, yeah, but that was the product or that, you know, that was better marketing or like whatever. How did you measure that? No, no, it's our impact that is moving the needle here and not some other element of the business. Well, I think there's, there's, there's a couple different things. So what we traditionally do with a client is we service them for about three to six months. And that gives us like the data set to come back and say, okay, Based off of our experience, these are the metrics that we can really improve, move, and manage. And if they align with that, then we look at these are the targets that we need to achieve over the next year. And then we move to outcome-based pricing, right? In Darn. some cases, we, we already know because we've been doing their consulting for a while. So we already know the metrics. And so we can just start off with outcome-based pricing. But for a new client, because we, we don't want to over-promise, under-deliver, under-promise, over-deliver. We want it to be really impactful to their business. But even so, like the number one thing that most gaming clients and other clients, uh, you know, they suffer with is unexpected spikes or unexpected volume. And sure. so because we have, you know, at Arise, we, you know, we have 75,000 global workers globally or service partners is what we call them, but we can flex up and down. So service level, that response time, how fast do you respond to the customer is one that's everywhere, regardless of the business, For like sure. response time is key. But when, when it gets a little bit difficult is okay, well, what after response time? And that's where, is it a customer effort? Is it a customer satisfaction? And what what is it? Quality scores. What is that that's going to move the needle for for that particular yeah. um, customer? And so we customize that with each client. So cool. And, and you know, I've heard firsthand experience with this recently because, of course, the, the pandemic. Hopefully, a little bit more in the rearview mirror. Now we're traveling more, and of course, like the travel industry is destroyed because people have left. Right. The and and so you wait yeah. times like renting a car back in March was like you'd have these long lineups and yeah. get on the phone to try to change a flight. It'd be like, you know, you're on the hold for hours. So to your point, the, the ability to accordion sort of style up and down is huge. I think I understand yeah. the business model. I mean, what I, what I find amazing is you guys started in 2019, you and Scott, if I've got this number, correct me if I've got these right. And then sold in 2021, two years later, I've got a, a couple dozen employees, like 25 employees, something like that. Like that's yeah. hyper growth <laughs> over two yeah, years. Yeah. I mean, we, I mean, we, we kind of started, we, we started with four people and our only funding mechanism was $150,000 loan. Um, and we, we just said, let's go and, and see what the market says. And in two years we made over 10 million in gross revenue. And we were kind of at, the, so it was super, super high growth for the first couple of years of a services startup. But then we were like, hey, we need to go to that next level. We need to go from like 10 million in two years to how do we get to a hundred million dollar book of business, you know, in one year and like, and how, and so that's where we started to look at, you know, should we go the VC route? Should we go the 
loan route? Should we go the acquisition route to see what was the right you know mix for us to be able to scale to be, to build a hundred million dollar gaming and consulting business? Yeah, I want to I want to get to that next because I think that's such an interesting it's such an interesting inflection point for a lot of entrepreneurs so early in their journey, they realize the business is working. There's a lot of upside. Do they self-finance it and grow perhaps more slowly, retain all the equity or bring in a partner and grow? And I think a lot of our listeners are in that, that, that fork in the road right now. And I think, I think that's, that's, that's huge. Um, This is a goofy question, but I'm curious because of course, how things are financed are critical. Your $150,000 loan, who backstopped that? Was that equally co-signed by you and Scott or did you have a silent partner? Or like how did, who, who kind of fronted that, if you will? We incubated inside of a company called Forte Labs. Sure. Um, you, might have heard, you might have heard of them recently because they just, I think they got several hundreds of million dollars in their latest yeah. series, right? They're the cryptocurrency gaming platform. So we actually started off as their customer success service team. And then I had a conversation with Kevin Chu, who's the chairman. And I said, hey, Kevin, like we should spin this out and we should do this decentralized services, revenue-based services you know, for everyone. And he agreed. And so he gave us a $150,000 loan. And, and that's, that's how we, we spun out. And, and then they, you know, Forte was our first customer. And then Rally, another spin out of Forte, was our second customer. And then we just kind of grew from there. And in two months, we had four or five customers and we were profitable. And so we're like, we think we're onto something. I I love the fact that you incubated inside a company because it obviously reduces your your risk and and you got a client. Did did Kevin take a, did Forte take a piece of equity for that? Yeah. I mean, you know, anytime that you have that investor that's willing to give you money, there's always going to be equity on the table. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. And so, so you had Forte, you and Scott uh, as the equity holders. Any other sort of outside equity holders? No. Yeah, that makes sense. And 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 you were able to get to over a two year run, ten million. Was it was it sort of five and five, or were you more on the hockey stick growth, like two and eight? It was, it was more <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Stick. Yeah, it was yeah. more hockey stick. I think the first year um, we were in the neighborhood of. I think it was around three, three and a half. Okay. Um, and then the second year we went kind of hockey stick, right? Six, yeah. six and a half. Yeah. So. Um, and so, and then this year, I mean, <clears throat> I'm part of a rise, so I don't think I'm allowed to say my revenue anymore. But uh, but this year, you can imagine <laughs> that the hockey stick is continuing to to grow. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I want to get to a rise because I think it's a it's an it's a it's a really cool story. Before we get there, though, so you're you were you were getting into this sort of description of w- what triggered you to think about maybe partnering with someone. So it's you and yeah. Scott. You've got Forte as a as a partner, non operational. You're you're at this fork in the road where you could grow organic. I mean, you you're you're you are successful. Is the company sucking cash at this point? Uh, to finance the growth, or are you able to keep the cash flow model positive? despite the growth? No, we had really good liquidity. Uh, and so that was that was great. I mean, that's one of the biggest challenges of a startup, I think, is liquidity. It's not profitability. It's it's keeping the business running. Because Is that because you charged for the, the, the licensing of the maturity model kind of upfront? Or like, how did you keep the cash flow positive? Well, some of it's upfront and then some of it's like net 30, net 45 okay. or payment. So that's why you need the liquidity. 
Um, and, and then a lot of times if you don't charge up front, liquidity is going to either be your best friend or your worst enemy yeah. in the early yeah. days of a startup. Um, but no, I like we we really thought about like how do we scale the business sustainably when we built our set of core values. Sustainability was a key component to Scott and I's belief. We, I, I was part of Postmates in the early days before Uber, you know, acquired them. And when I was with them, they were growing ten percent per week. Unbelievable. And, and so it was insane. But it was difficult to sustain. Like the CX experience was difficult to sustain other things. And so I really wanted, I was like, you know, I was like, we could grow and we could burn a lot of cash and grow, or we can grow sustainably and build a solid book of business. And so we decided to grow sustainably. So it could have been a faster growth pattern, but we decided not to, to go faster. Yeah. What was the cash flow model on Connect? So if I'm, I'll make up a name, but, you know, Delta Airlines uh, for fun. And yeah. I say, I really want the Connect product. I want you to give me like a flexible workforce, the uh, gig CX team. Did you charge Delta up front and then pay the individual partners at, like 30 days later? Or, or how did that? No, happen? no, we did, uh, we did pay as you go with the clients. And we would just, we would pay the partners like, I think it was every week or two weeks or something. But after you received your cash, I'm assuming. No, 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 no. Oh, okay. You, you, okay. You, if you want to keep, if you want to keep loyal service partners, you have to pay them, like at, right after they do the work. I mean, there's so much competition out there in the globe for decentralized workers. If you wait to pay somebody a month or a month and a half until you get the pay, like there's, you're not going to get loyalty, right? They're going to leave you for the next brand. So, and that's that's one of the reasons why. You know, we when we launched the Connect brand, we did it six or seven months after we had the the Transform brand, as what the maturity model is, uh, because then we had enough liquidity in the bank where we could front load those costs without her having to worry about um, you know funding additional funding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was, you know, it's funny because I did a built sell radio episode. Oh gosh, three four years ago with a guy who owned a staffing agency. And I appreciate there are differences between your model and his, but yeah, the, yeah. The, the, the similarity was that he, client would pay him and he would then pay these employees. And he was growing quickly and the timing almost killed the business because he was paying the workers weekly. And then he was he was waiting 30, 45, 60 days to get paid by the brand. That's right. Yeah. And he was like growing like stink and thinking that, you know, things were great, but he was, his cash balances were dropping dramatically yeah. and he ultimately yeah. it almost killed him. Yeah. So it, it uh, that's maybe why that I was asking more specifically about the cash model, but it sounds like you guys had it much more dialed in. Got it. Excellent. That's super helpful. So back to the, so you're growing, you're self-financing successfully. What, was there a, a kind of a, a straw that broke the camel's back or like a triggering event that lit the match that that said, no, we, we really need to find a partner here? Like, was there a day of the week that you can remember sitting down with Scott saying, we really need to find a partner? Well, we, we had, I think, two or three kind of aha moments. I think one was for anybody that, you know, has gone from like 10 people to 50 people to 100 people, like, the GNA and the SNM sales and marketing and the general kind of support costs, they grow up demonstrably, right? And so we started to look like, okay, we're continuing to scale and grow the company, 
the legal's costing more, finance is costing more, IT, we're starting to become a target for phishing and other things, right? So we got to we get, we got to do all those support services in a best in class way, right? HR, those types of things. So we're like, we got to figure that out. And we don't have anybody in the company that has that kind of expertise. Um, and so that's, that was one kind of aha moment that we had to think about. The second one was even though we were super successful, our credibility to the market was still young, right? You know, we, we know I could go and get business from, people in my LinkedIn network that I've heard personal relationships from, but I could not go and get business from Delta because I don't know anybody since we're using Delta today. I don't know anybody at Delta because I don't have a, a credible enough brand to just go in and Delta be like, Oh yeah, I've heard of Fissium. They've been around for 20 years. I want to go do business with them. Right. So we knew that we had a credibility problem. Um, and then the other thing is we, we were coming up on two years and, most of the staff have been with us for two years and you get to that point where they're like, Hey, when do I get a raise? You know, what's my next career move? You know, what's, when, when are we going to institute bonuses? The shares are great, but it, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. And so we look at those three things and we're like, Hey, we, if we want to continue to kind of get a hundred million dollar book of business or company size, right. We, we have to, we have to figure out how to solve for these three issues or opportunities and, and so that's what kind of led us down the path. Uh, we looked at VCs and there's a lot of interest there. We looked at loans, not so much interest because we were less than two years old or two years, even though we had good revenue, banks don't tend to like get to give business loans of yeah. the amount that we wanted because of our size. And so then we're like, well, who's a, who's, who's a great acquisition partner? And so we got three offers, you know, and we, we picked the one that we thought was the best commercially for the shareholders, but was also the best to hit those three things that we talked about to help continue to grow and scale. And also one other area that we needed to think about was a platform uh, for our service partners. And, and we wanted to make sure we partnered with someone that had a scalable platform. So all of those things were super important and helped us make our decision. Yeah, that makes total sense. So just let me summarize them. You know, staff wanting the next career move, credibility to get into a whole bunch of new Fortune 500 companies, because this is really a Fortune 500 play. These are like large enterprise, yeah, global yeah, yeah, global yeah. companies that need this. So you need that credibility. SGNA expenses going up and you wanting a platform that, that sort of scales to the next level. Yeah. That, that so makes Those are like the tension points. And then the decision point was like, we also wanted to find somebody you know, that had a similar culture to ours. We felt like we had a really good culture. We, you know, we got plus 65 on NPS for employee satisfaction. EMPS for employee. Yeah, yeah, plus 65. And so we wanted to also make sure wherever we went that there was a good culture and a good experience too. So uh, it wasn't a tension point, but it was a decision factor. Yeah, it was one of the criteria. That makes sense. Let me Let me just nibble at the edges of this for a second because – a lot of companies would would have the same growing pains. I'll characterize them as such at at at, at whatever uh, somewhere in the five ten million dollar range of revenue. They'd be like they'd have some of the same experiences. The founder's personal network is tapped, so they've got to sort of quote, professionalize sales and marketing, and they've got to you know. I've heard these things. Yet some founders still. I guess are so obsessed with control and maybe willing to make the trade-off of growing slower 
and and just so passionate about owning it all um, that they say, well, I'll just put the brakes on and and slow down, but I want to I want to kind of you know I I I, I don't yeah. want to boss. That's the decision they come to. Yeah, yeah. I guess in both you and Scott's case, I took a look at your bios. Both of you guys have worked in lots of companies, so 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 you've you've been a part of an executive team before between you know a yeah. manager team. Did that give you an additional sense of comfort that you knew what it felt like to be working within the context of a larger company? Like, did, do you know what I'm getting at? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think, I think that was part of it. I think when you go back to one of the first conversations that Scott and I had, we we're like, Hey, let's try this startup. We'll take the $150,000 loan. We don't know if it's going to work. If it doesn't work, we'll go back to corporate environments. But if it does work, we could build something special, right? And so we never had, like, I talked to some founders, and every every founder is a little bit different, like what motivates them and their passion. But a lot of founders were kind of like, I want to build a unicorn. I want to build a billion-dollar brand. Yep. And Scott and I were like, hey, if we build a $10 million brand or a $30 million brand, you know, that's way more than we ever expected to from a $150,000 loan, right? The company grew 5x faster than we expected it to, right? And so when we got to our decision point, for us, you know, our personalities weren't so much of like, hey, let's let's control this and create a billion-dollar brand. Our personality was more like, hey, we've tapped into something pretty cool here. Everybody that got involved is, our, is better commercially because we're going to do the sale and everyone's still going to have a job. And by the way, we've worked in corporate environments, so we know how to operate in executive areas and how to negotiate those things, right? So for us, it was a comfortable thing, right? I mean, we're yeah. both, oh, Scott and I are both over 40. We've been in the business for a while, you know. But at different founders have different motivations of what they're trying to achieve. Also, I don't think this is my, I mean, I've done two startups, right? So this isn't my last startup. So I also know like every startup, in my opinion, maybe you get, maybe you get, lucky and you get the Facebook or the Uber or whatever. Sure. But most most folks go through a few startups before they get the the one that goes big, right? And so I was like, hey, this was went a little bit bigger than I expected. Let me use that foundation. So in five or six years when I do my next one, I've got a, a, my my second PhD in startup land and I'll go for the third one and see how it goes. Yeah. No, I think I think it's great. And you know, as as, as you as you talk, it's occurred to me for I've done the show for a while. It's occurred for me. It occurred to me for the first time that co-founders, by the very nature they have each other, yeah. have already signaled to the world and made a decision that they are okay collaborating. They're not yeah. these sort of swashbuckling control freaks, you've got you know the lone wolf yeah. persona entrepreneur, right? They're like, no, no, I, I'm happy to collaborate with someone else. I'm part of a team. That's part of, you know, and so yeah. it, 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 I'm going to now test that theory in future interviews because I think it, it actually makes, makes sense intuitively. Got it. So I, I get, I think the triggering event, the re, the rationale, let's get to the process. Did you, um, hire an M and A professional and sort of shop it. Uh, like, how did you get the three offers? I guess is 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 my question. I mean, it was kind of interesting. The they kind of came out of the blue, hmm. kind of all at the same time. So we didn't we didn't shop the business per se, uh, but you know, some folks reached out to me on LinkedIn. You know, maybe they heard that we were going through VC, talking to VCs. I'm not sure, 
but they reached out and, you know, they were, they were just interested. They're like, wow, you guys have kind of come out of nowhere. And, you know, we had huge social proof. We were at conferences, we were doing blogs, podcasting, you know, I mean, Nate uh, Brown, who was our kind of chief customer experience officer at the time, he, you know, it's 10,000 Twitter followers. I mean, so we had a lot of social proof and, and oftentimes people talk about how we were fighting above our weight class a bit um, from the marketing and social proof side. So we were known. And so people are like, oh, what's going on here? I want to talk to you. And then they heard our story and they're like, hey, I want to buy you because hmm. we think that you're a great supplement to our brand. So the three offers that we can't, that we got, you know, they we weren't shopping for them, but they happened. And we had the conversations and, and then we kind of went with the one that we thought was best. And then and then there was a due diligence process and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And did you, before getting any of the three offers, did you and Scott have any inkling of of what it might be worth on a, on a multiple of EBITDA basis? Like, had you guys gone back and forth at all and said, you know what, I think we can get X times you know, profit for yeah. I mean, when we when we looked at the the market, I mean, if you're in a services space, right? If you can get, you know, twelve x EBITDA, that's really good. Um, I say, <laughs> yeah, that's huge for a I services mean, company. That's unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. I mean, eight x EBITDA, I think, is the standard, and and we got for, well yeah, above twelve x awesome. EBITDA. So, like it, it was a win win for for everyone. I think. Got it. So you and Scott are like, you know what? We should be able to get something north of eight, 12 would be amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. And so what, what did you find when you got these offers? Like what, what, what were the offers kind of coming in at relative to the eight versus the 12? And yeah, I mean, most of them were in the, the two of them were in like the eight to 10 range. And then there was one that was um, well above the 12 and like as high as 20. Yeah, size that, yeah. And and so when you look at it, it the one that was a rise, right? Um, not only, you know, was the, the commercials really good, uh, but we, we do something that they didn't do at the time, which was gaming and consulting, right? So we're bringing something to the table for them. They do something that, that we didn't have at the time, the platform. They'd been around for 27 years, 75,000 service partners, credibility, scalability, right? They have an established leadership team with SGNA, all these different types of things, right? So it was, we felt like a, out, even outside of the commercial bit, like if, it, if they all would have come in around 8 or 11, we still probably would have gone kind of with the rise because we felt like they were the best fit of all three of the companies across all the parameters, intentions, as well as decision factors that we were considering. Yeah, yeah. Now, most times with a service company course, there's a fairly big proportion in an earnout. How did you guys structure it relative to the earnout piece, or did you take equity in a rise, or how did they sort of structure the the deal? Yeah, it was definitely. Um, there's some upfront percentage and there's earnout percentage. It's probably what you might expect in a normal services company. I mean, because it's not IP based, right? You, your multiples are a little bit less, um, so then they they want the way they make their money on the original initial buy is they structure where they give you maybe I don't know fifty sixty percent up front, 
and then they were, you know, 40% as earn out or something of that nature. And that's traditional with most all services companies. Yeah. Yeah. And earn outs are harder to achieve. Like, you know, most founders would be like, well, I don't want to do earn outs. And that's fine. I have plenty of people that tell me, told me not to do an earn out. Right. But I felt like, again, it wasn't about us, Scott, I becoming super rich or whatever. It was about like, how do we build on our core values and take care of our people, build a good culture and then help scale towards where we wanted to get with a hundred million. And so when we looked at the numbers, the opportunity, we felt the earnout approach was the best approach for us. What was it about the hundred million dollar opportunity that was meaningful to both you and Scott? I mean, I get that it's a round number, <laughs> but what was it about that 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 is motivating for you and Scott? I mean, I think for me, a hundred million dollars demonstrates industry credibility, recognition, impact. It also demonstrates, since we're a decentralized team, the ability to move wealth from the tech hubs to local communities. I think if I were to speak for Scott, Scott's less interested in the money and more interested in the impact that we, the the jobs or the opportunities that we can give people to get purpose, to be part of a great culture, and to to be able to scale. Because, I mean, Scott and I are like yin yin and yang. I don't want to like oversimplify him or me, but I'm the visionary that wants to get stuff done, that loves to envision the future. And Scott's the, hey, this is how we do it. Wait, should we do that? Should we not do that? Are we taking care of our people? So it's it's a really good balance that we had with each other. Um, But I think that like it takes both of those types, at least in my experience. Sure. Uh, Like I couldn't have done this without Scott, probably Scott without me. And so for us, it was a perfect match of bringing different things to the table so that we could you know, stay true to what we believe were the core values. It also, you know, forever and a day vindicates you at all those meetings 20 years ago where you're like, it's not a cost center. It's actually, a, a you know, an opportunity to make money yeah. and preserve, yeah. you know, revenue. You know, it's funny. I, do you, have you ever heard of or read David Goggins book? I haven't. David Goggins is uh, an ultra, you know, ultra marathoner, Navy SEAL, you know, an incredible uh, athlete on every measure. He had a, an absolutely horrible childhood growing up, mm-hmm. and he describes it in the book. And he describes all these feats that he accomplished in his his career. And you know, he he revealed to the reader that in part he was really trying to exercise some of those demons as part, like achieving those goals allowed him yeah. to prove that they had it wrong. Uh, yeah. And certainly if you guys got to a hundred million, you would certainly <laughs> go a long way to, to showing that folks had it wrong all those years ago. Yeah, I think so. I mean, even just getting to 10 or 20 or 30 million, right. It demonstrate mm-hmm. the fact that we can show a company how they're making or preserving millions of dollars through their service experience. There's very few companies out there that can do it right. Uh, mm-hmm. Less than that, less than like maybe two or three. Um, and so like giving that power and authority to the service teams to go and then have those influential conversations with the power cores and the executive teams of companies. I mean, it's amazing. It changes the dynamic 
And and to be honest, in my opinion, it changes the profitability of some of these products because it eventually gets to the product team and they make different decisions because they realize that, you know, customers are the heart of their company. And if they want the heart to be healthy and the body to grow and then they have to listen to what the customers are saying. They can't just push them to the side and and do, do just enough to keep enough engaged, to keep the, the numbers going. Like if you want to be a market leader, you have to take care of your customer. Absolutely. Take me back to the urn out decision. Obviously you heard, you've heard some of the same stories I have, uh, you know, never, you know, never accept it or not, you know, like treat it as gravy. If you get it, you know, you hear these things. I've heard some very tactical advice over the years as well. One being try to tie the urn out to revenue because you sort of can more easily control that. And it's, it's less, you know, easy to fake or, or to, to, to monkey with. How did you guys think about some of those ideas did did you tie it to profitability or did you go revenue or like was there some other way that you structured the earn out piece so that you got you and scott were comfortable that you could control it effectively yeah i mean when we when we grow grew the business we you know i think there's three main ways right you've got gross revenue gross profit and then you've got ebitda right you know and i think if you're doing an earn out EBITDA is probably the, the riskiest one on the mm-hmm. earn phase because there could be things that you don't control inside the new company, right? Um, gross revenue, so from a, a seller standpoint, EBITDA is the riskiest. The gross revenue is the riskiest from a buyer standpoint because I could scale a business to $100 million, but then make no gross profit, right? And so that's that's kind of risky. So usually what I find in most companies that I've talked to is the profitability. So gross profit tends to be that middle ground. And so Smart. most companies that I've talked to or even buyers uh, you know, that were considering Efficium were most interested in that gross profit because it was a, is a happy middle ground between the buyer and the seller. And so especially for a services company, that tends to be where a lot of people land. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that makes a ton of sense. And, and I've never, our show is all about helping owners punch above their weight when they sell. So I'm, I'm always on that, like, you gotta go for revenue, but I, I hadn't really worn the other hat, which of course is the acquirer. Yeah. Like, yeah, but you could game the revenue just as easily as you, they could game. The but it also so, depends yeah. on like who your buyer is. So, I mean, our buyer is owned by private equity, right? And, you know, that's very similar to, you might as well just be on the public stock exchange. Because um, the, the, they, they're very thorough in their due diligence, which is great. It's great for the business. Other buyers may be a little bit less thorough in the due diligence, and, and they just may want to scale. And they don't care about profitability and EBITDA because they're going to buy you because they're, they're, they're counting on top-line growth, yeah. right? And then there's other buyers that care nothing about nothing but bottom-line growth. And so they're definitely going to push for EBITDA, which will be harder for you to pull them away from. So I, I think it, it really does depend on your buyer, too. Yeah. Yeah. How many years did you commit to in the earn out? I think that's probably confidential, but what I, I'll say is most earn outs that I see in the service space is usually between 18 months to three years. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've heard as long as can you, if you can believe it, seven years in marketing services, but yeah, that would I, be that's crazy. <laughs> I don't know anyone that stay this day and age who stays at a company for seven years. That's pretty rare. Hey, this has been great. Do you, do you mind doing a quick lightning round of just a few questions that I'll just shoot at you and then, uh, uh, 
you can give me a quick response. Um, you had three acquisition offers, had lots of conversations with different potential partners, investors, yeah. et cetera. What is the slimiest, most underhanded trick an acquirer or an investor tried to play on you in the process? I mean, I think, I don't know if it's, if a choir qualifies, but I'll tell you the thing that annoyed me the most sure. is when they, they get kind of the CEO on the call, the CEO kind of tells you all this amazing stuff, really excited about you. And then when you send an email to the CEO, they never respond. <laughs> like obviously it wasn't a rise that did this. A rise was great. But like, I was like, dude, like if, if you're interested in my company, you should respond to my email. And, and in fact, that was the number one reason why I decided not to even consider that offer was because that, that lack of respect or that disrespect was enough to me to say, hey, this is the wrong culture. I don't want to put my people in a company like this. What an awesome acid test to know, right? Because you're right. The CEO will pop into the meeting. Oh, wow. You know, Jonathan, great stuff. I'll leave it to my team to really kind of work on the details. But if you ever need anything, you know, <laughs> you set up an email, it doesn't even respond. Awesome. Biggest mistake you made during your selling process that if you had it to do over again, you'd love a mulligan on? I, I mean, I think I hired uh, the wrong folks early on in the sales process. So most of the sales in the first couple of years just came from me uh, as BD. And, and so I went out to the market thinking that I could bring somebody on that could could see the same vision and understand things the same way that I could, but, but I couldn't. So I should have doubled down more on my selling and my BD and then leveraged that money for building use cases as marketing collateral, a bunch of other things that I didn't do till like eight or nine months later. Uh, Some of it was a learning experience. We have this uh, kind of concept in our company from Nelson Mandela, win or learn. There's no <laughs> failure. It's either winning or learning. Um, and so that was a good learning experience for me. Yeah. Yeah. I could see you walking to my office. How, how'd you do today, John? I'm learning a ton. <laughs> I'm learning a ton. <laughs> okay. So that's super helpful on the whole journey over two years. I, my actual question was around the selling process. So if you take those three offers and kind of yeah. negotiating with those three people and, you know, structuring your deal with the rise, like, if you just take that window of time, if you could play it back and do it all over again, what might you do differently? I probably would not have tried to sell my company right before I went on paternity leave. So I, Pro tip. I the, the LOI came in and then a month later I had a baby and I, I took three months paternity, but really I didn't because I was working, doing the due diligence and all that kind of stuff, right? So I think probably if I were to do it in the future, I'd be like, wait, maybe we should wait till after the paternity leave so that I can keep focus on the things that were priority. I still, I mean, I love my, my little guy. He's amazing. I was able to spend a lot of time with him. But when, because of that distraction, I think some of the due diligence might have taken longer. Some of my business didn't get as much attention from me as it normally would. So that's that's probably not applicable across other people who are listening to the podcast. Something that might be more applicable is like really make sure that you ask all the questions that are important to you 
in the beginning. Uh, just says, just, just imagine that this is a relationship and that you have 100% the same amount of decision power as the other person, even though they, they may, it may seem like the buyer has more, um, like just make sure you keep it equal. That's something that, you know, I learned through the process and I don't have any disgruntledness or any, like anything of that nature. Cause I just learned a ton cause I'd, I'd never actually sold a company at the level of value that I sold my first exit was much smaller. Um, and so like I learned a ton through this acquisition process, but that's one thing that I would say, Hey, make sure you have your whole list of everything that you want to ask and acquire and be very, very thoughtful and diligent about that before you go into the conversation. We didn't do that. We did it along the way, which was mm-hmm. fine, but we learned some things along the way too. What question, and again, I'm asking this because I think a lot of our listeners will be going yeah. through this for the first time and, and, and aren't sure what to ask. So if you had it to do over again and you had your first conversation with an investor or acquirer, what what are the top three questions you would have you will ask next time and you would have asked it had, you know had you known what you know now i would have i would have wanted to do first thing is do a, an an exact meetup between the teams face to face we couldn't do that because of covid but i'd want to do a face to face exact meetup where everybody could get to know each other spend a couple of days together and make sure that the fit is there right it ended up working out fine with the rise, um, but it would have been a lot easier if we would have been able to do that. So that's one. The second thing is, I think it's important to understand exactly what the reasoning is, but why someone's wanting to buy you um, and make sure you drill down into that reasoning. It's, it's more than just this, this and that, like drill down and understand like what is their model what does success look like? What's their five-year strategy? How do you plug into that strategy? That Those things. And then I think the third thing to think about is depending on what you're hoping to get from the relationship, make sure you drill down in great detail about that to ensure that you feel super confident that once the deal is signed, you'll, you'll immediately start to get those things. And then I, I think I'd add a fourth which is just make sure as you go through the due diligence process that you start to build out the integration plan at that stage. So then you know how organized folks are on both sides to ensure that the integration can be successful. The Arise integration has gone really well, but I I hear horror stories all the time that everything fell apart at integration because it wasn't really well organized. There wasn't expectation setting. There wasn't buy-in, communication, collaboration. So that integration piece is super important to do even before you finish due diligence process. Yeah, that's really good. You know, you're so focused on the finish line, but of course the the clock starts as soon as you, you know, sign the uh, share purchase agreement, certainly on the earn out piece that, and if the integration is fumbled, it can be very hard to recover. Yeah, so, yeah. so that's a, that's a really great tip. I've heard selling a business characterized as a roller coaster before emotionally. I'd be curious, what was the lowest point emotionally for you in this process of of selling your company i think i think for me the easiest way to explain it is like i created a baby not a human baby but like a business baby well you've done that too but (laughs) and i did that too but and i had to be okay with like letting somebody else take him from like childhood to teenage right 
And that was, it was, it was my lowest point because it was the hardest decision to make to say, Hey, I've invented something. I created something. And now I'm going to, to sensibly give the reins of that away to somebody else. Cause that's what you do when you sell, even if you have some influence and some control. And so that was, that was the hardest moment. And I, I actually didn't make that final decision until I was like halfway through due diligence, even though like on paper, I was ready to go. You know, I had to like, I had to emotionally be like, Hey, I'm ready to be acquired. I'm ready to let somebody else have the reins. You know, I'm ready to, for lack of, I don't really believe in the word control, but to give up some governance. Right. Um, and so that was the hardest thing. And so lowest in the sense that, oh man, I did something amazing and I'm going to, and I'm going to, I'm going to let go of it. Right. That letting go moment was tough. And how did you, how did you reconcile in your mind the decision that it was that you, that you were ready to let go? Cause I think as, as you described that as eloquently as you just did, people listening will be like nodding up and down and going, yep, that's exactly where I am. They may have received an acquisition offer. They may be in the throes of a negotiation and they're asking themselves, but yeah, am I ready to let this, let this, you know, I'll, I'll give you a personal story. Uh, we've got two kids. One is getting ready to leave for university next year. And like, I am going to be an absolute basket case. Like there is no way I'm going to get through that goodbye at the, the, at the dorm room without breaking out yeah, into yeah. a massive puddle of tears. Cause I'm not ready. I, I know yeah. I'm not ready. Um, so that's a very different example, but I, I, I think what you're describing is, uh, is what a lot of entrepreneurs face. So how did you get your head around it? I mean, I think everybody finds peace in different ways. Right. And, you know, I, the way that I look at like my decision framework is I look at the priorities in my life and the priorities and the commitments that I've made with my, with my team, my professional team. Right. And I want to make sure that I can take care of my family as my number one priority and my business team and my professional career as my number two priority. Um, and then I want to make sure that I can be at peace with that decision. Um, and so as I went through like my prioritization, you know, I just had a new kid, you know, you know, I wanted to spend the next couple years with him. Right. I didn't want to be on the road 80% of the time being a founding CEO. Right. So I, I wanted to spend more time with my wife. You know, it's those first couple of years. So that was like a personal important priority for me. On the professional side, a lot of these people came on and they they came and joined because they believed in me or Scott, right? So I wanted to give them a good landing place so that since, since I wanted to make this decision for my life to de-stress de my life, in addition to the commercial reasons to sell the business, let's make sure it's a good culture. Let's make sure that it's a good landing place for them for the next few years and so they decide what they want to do next. Um, and then the shareholders, I wanted to make sure like these shareholders, the ones that invested, you know, you know, Kevin and the employees that believed in us, that they got some good commercial returns um, for that. And then like for me, it was, it was partially about head, but partially about heart. I'm kind of a spiritual guy. Um, and and so I, I did a lot of soul searching 
a long, lot of walks, a lot of thinking, contemplating, meditating, praying, those types of things. And I, I just came to the con- conclusion that this is the right time for all of that to be accomplished. And you, one of the things you have to know how to do as a founder is when do you pivot? Whether it's pivoting to a different product, pivoting to a different geo, or pivoting to selling your business, right? Um, you have to know when to pivot. And I was convinced, like, this is the time to pivot. And I talked with Scott. Scott had his own process that he went through. And he's like, yes, this is the time to pivot. So we aligned on it and we pivoted. And the Forte guys, were they on board or they were like, why are you guys selling so early or what? Yeah, did, they were, they they were super supportive. Yeah, got it. What was the highest mo- moment emotionally? I mean, I think the highest moment emotionally was signing the agreement and knowing that the 15, 20 shareholders in my company got, just got a lot more value than they would have got in another way. And over the last two years, because if you can help somebody sitting next to you, that's been with you on the journey, then I mean, I think that's really powerful. And and that was my highest moment to know that just me signing this piece of paper, not only gave long term opportunities for people, but gave them an immediate commercial boost. And in some cases, maybe it changes people's lifestyle. Um, That was the highest moment for me. How did you deliver the news? I've heard entrepreneurs who say one of the most incredible moments of my life was actually, you know, walking up to an employee's house, knocking on the door and, and, and literally handing them a check and watching them like break down in tears. Like, did you physically hand each person a check in a closed door meeting? Did you do it as a group? Like, how did you deliver the news? So we, we probably didn't have, that's, that's, that's very dramatic and very interesting. Um, handing somebody a check. Uh, we, we did, it's obviously COVID, right? So there's no in-person stuff, but, uh, but we did have one-on-ones with each of the individuals. We kind of walked them through what the opportunity looks like in the new company, what this means to them as a shareholder, uh, as well as long-term capability via earnout and those types of things. And I think by and large, and we just did our leadership offsite, our first time in two years, we met up here. This is our customer experience lab. So this is the office. But we have a whole lab where we bring customers and do workshops. But we brought a little leadership here. And it was just such a wonderful moment to reconnect post-acquisition, to remember who we are, what we built, and how we're different and amazing. And to kind of feel that energy and that power and kind of just the connection that we have. And so I think it was, I think going through an acquisition, everybody has ups and downs. But I think it was generally super powerful for folks to know that not only did did I get this amazing experience with the Fissian, but now I get to continue to do cool things uh, with their eyes as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. As you approached the the negotiation with these three offers, yeah. did you rely on or did you tap into any resources? And I'm looking for practical yeah. things like a book, uh, an online course, a conference, a webinar, a seminar, uh, anything that you could point people towards that helped educate you about the process? So when I started my company, I enlisted a, a board of advisors, about seven or eight of them. And so they were along, and some of them have different skill sets. Like some of them are like grow the business. Some of them are sell the business. Some of them are exited founders. Some of them are CX leaders, industry experts, that kind of stuff. 
And so as I went through the process, I just tapped into all my mentors. Um, so I had those six or seven. Then I have an additional three or four mentors that I have used for the last 20 years. And so I tapped into those folks and I had, and thankfully, you know, they were kind enough to give me, you know, kind of mentorship for free. Like they didn't ask for anything in return. And so they just kind of paid it forward. And I asked them this question, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? When I had my my biggest moments of doubts or my, my biggest moments of yays or whatever, like I just talked through all of my mentors um, and that way I could be, have a level kind of 360 view. And of, I mean, of course, the, I don't know. I don't, I don't know that I went to a specific book, how do I sell a company? But I did read a lot of like white papers and a lot of, I studied and researched a lot on the internet of how companies are sold, how to do multiples, how, how to do earnouts, due diligence, you know, integration plans. I did an, an enormous amount of research online, mainly just either they gave me an advice or I Google search stuff, you know, and, and did that kind of stuff. What trophy did you buy yourself to commemorate this incredible achievement? Tesla. Nice. Model My S. wife has been X. trying to talk me to get a Tesla for like five years. But I'd be like, we don't need a Tesla because we had we had this beautiful Mazda CX-5 we've had since 2012. And I said, it's running. There's nothing wrong with the Mazda. Like, it's fantastic. It's like, it's an SUV. So it's like enough space for the She's baby. She's like, Troyer, live a little, man. You just sold your company. I know. She's like, hey, man, when I get off on of maternity leave, I want that self-drive for my hour commute. And so she finally broke me down and she's like, dude, you just sold your company. Can we just please get a Tesla? And so, so we did. So we, we got a Tesla. What did, you, did you get the X with the fancy doors? The uh, no, the- unfortunately, we, the, you know, the, base, the houses in the Bay Area are a little bit smaller, at least where I live. And in my house is built in 1928. So the garage cannot fit the X. <laughs> like the garage door is too small. So we 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 got the Y, and there's two inches on each side of the Y Perfect. to get it into the garage. Perfect. There's all kinds of cameras will tell you if you're going to bump it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's perfect. I love it because I don't even have to worry anymore. <laughs> twelve inches, ten inches, twelve inches, and now and now I can't go back. I like I never want to drive the Mazda again. There you go. Tell your wife she made a good call. I'll let her know. <laughs> Jonathan, thanks for doing this. I know people are going to want to reach out to you and and connect. Um, can you point um, where where online is the best place for folks to connect? With so you, you can reach, reach me at, on LinkedIn, Jonathan Schroyer. You can just search me up there, um, follow me, friend me. I'm also on Twitter at, at JJ Schroyer. So Jonathan Jerry is, is my name, Jonathan Jerry Schroyer. So at JJ Schroyer, I'm on Twitter as well. So. Cool. Yeah, just look at me. I love chatting with people, you know, connecting, talking about best in class stuff, mentoring. You know, I mentor four or five founders today. Um, so I love advising companies too. whatever, whatever I can do to help. I appreciate the time, John. It's a wonderful conversation today. That's awesome. Well, listen, Jonathan, we'll put all of that, your Twitter feed, your LinkedIn, and the show notes at builttosell.com. Jonathan, this has been super fun. Thank you for doing it. Yeah, thanks for the time, man. Have a great day. And that is it for today's interview. We hope you enjoyed John Warlow's conversation with Jonathan Schroyer today. Again, as I mentioned in the intro, I put together show notes, including links to everything referenced today, along with definitions for some of the more technical terms that were referenced in today's interview, which you can grab at builttosell.com. Again, 
If you have any suggestions for a guest who you feel like would be a perfect fit on Built to Sell Radio or you want to nominate yourself, you can go ahead and visit builttosell.com slash nominate and get in touch with me there. If you're a fan of Built to Sell Radio, then I would highly encourage you to head over to our YouTube page at Built to Sell Radio where we are going to be providing you with new special content uh, that you cannot find anywhere else. This is going to include some highlights and clips from some of the most recent episodes, some of the biggest takeaways from recent and past episodes. So be sure you head over to YouTube and that is at Built to Sell Radio and subscribe to our channel there. Special thanks to Dennis Labataglia for handling the audio engineering and thank you to the entire community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. I'm Colin Morgan, executive producer here at Built to Sell Radio. Talk to you again next week. 